Hi there, and welcome to the Kraken Busters, where we explore the history of the U.S. sea monster conflict of the 1940s and 1950s. This is episode 15, Operation Mousetrap, 1949. I'm Keith Billy. Okay, so last week we talked about the first few months of Thomas Dewey's presidency in 1949. It was a weird, liminal time. The country was still in shock and mourning over the atomic destruction of the Bay Area and Harry Truman's shocking suicide. But at the same time, the sacrifice of the Bay Area had finally changed the dynamic in the Pacific. With El Polpo and the Kelp Man dead, along with large numbers of the secondary and lesser creatures, the United States started to gain back some ground, or to gain back some sea, you know what I mean. This even went so far as the return of Hawaii to American control. But this clearing of the skies felt disturbingly temporary, and there was widespread knowledge that something had to be done to lock in these gains so that the sea creatures didn't just multiply their way back to supremacy. This week, Rich Trumbull and Kay Hendry have a plan. In the aftermath of the San Francisco disasters, the specialized teams within SyncPack and ONI had stepped back to rethink their individual and combined approaches to the problem of dealing with sea creatures. Direct conflict had consistently led to disaster so far. Atomic weapons were effective, but at the cost of terrible collateral damage and unthinkable environmental damage and fallout. And during this time, it was becoming clear that the new denial-of-space tactic definitely had some merit, but it was in no way a long-term solution because it didn't do anything about reducing the number of creatures in the sea, and it would eventually fail when they multiplied enough to get back to overwhelming numbers. Within ONI, the argument still raged over whether it mattered what the origin of the creatures was. Dr. Blakely Hart, a xenobiologist from UCLA, led a team focused on that question. Hart's work faced long odds in gaining acceptance within ONI. Later on, Kay Hendry reflected to the FCDP, quote, Blake Hart, she sighs. I got so tired of dealing with Blake Hart. 48, 49, that guy wasted so much of my time, of the department's time. I guess the questions he was chasing were interesting, but they were never relevant. So many times he'd demand a meeting with me because he had some hot new evidence that explained this or that theory about where the creatures had come from. So I'd sit through an hour of him babbling. And sometimes it was interesting, sometimes it was entertaining, sometimes especially as time went on, it was just obviously bullshit. And then he'd get to the end, and I'd say every time, fine, Blake, that's great. How do we use that against him? And he'd just sputter at me about science. I don't think what he was doing even was science. Maybe at first, but it drifted. He had a theory that had something to do with high-temperature vents at the bottom of the deep sea, something about high temperatures and sulfur interacting with seawater, and maybe there was something there, but the creatures weren't attacking us on the bottom, and San Francisco made it clear that they didn't need undersea vents to reproduce, so who cared about this? 
As the theories with some basis in real science failed to stick, he got more and more esoteric. After the vents, it was something about toxic pollution dumped into the ocean because of the war. And again, maybe. That did make some sense, but again, it also didn't matter. From there, he moved to something about electricity in the water, and then something about, and let me make sure I'm remembering this right, resonant fields of negative emotion creating a feedback loop of aggression and hate. That one was in 49. After that one, I stood up and told him to get the hell out of my office and not to come back, because I had a war to win. Hart dropped out of the project not long after that, end quote. And, uh... Quick note on Blake Hart, his fall was swift and severe, actually. After being asked to leave the ONI special duty team, he was later terminated by UCLA after Los Angeles police arrested him during a raid on the house of notorious rocket engineer Jack Parsons, where Parsons, Hart, and several other participants of both sexes were caught in the middle of what the LAPD report describes as, quote, a bizarre ritual that seemed to have something to do with sex, blood, and the devil, end quote. Hart subsequently left California and died in a Houston flophouse in 1954. Throughout the conflict, Dr. K. Hendry's group within ONI, which steadily became the dominant subunit within ONI's sea creatures operation, had specialized in observing the behavior of the creatures. Their guiding principle had been that, while it probably wasn't feasible to do a full from-first-principles biological workup on the creatures, there was value in looking for patterns in the way they behaved and identifying ways those patterns could be exploited. As Hendry told the FCDP after the conflict, quote, We couldn't figure out what they were. I mean, beyond the obvious. We couldn't figure out where they came from. All we could figure out for sure was that they hated us and wanted to kill us and eat us whenever possible. And the big break came when I realized maybe that's all we needed to know, really. If we could figure out that they would behave in predictable ways when they tried to kill us and eat us, and if the rest of the Navy could figure out a consistent way to hurt them as they did that, maybe we could put this all together. So to that end, my team and I went back to square one and tried to look at every conceivable piece of data we had about every attack. What exactly had the ships been doing at the time of attack? What had they been doing before the attack? There'd been some look at this to this point, of course, but not in a systematic or comprehensive way. Now we wanted to be as comprehensive as possible. As far as we could reconstruct from logs and interviews, what were the ship's engine settings? What were their screw speeds? Precisely what formations were they steaming in? And then one of our yeomen, who'd served on destroyers during the war, asked a simple question. What about sonar? We looked and looked at the data and saw a useful pattern right away. It wasn't an absolute thing, but a really large number of convoys that had been attacked had included a ship somewhere that, in the hours previous to the attack, had been using sonar in the 45 kilocycle band for underwater search, including, ironically, underwater search for sea creatures. In layman's terms, these ships had been broadcasting a very particular noise underwater to see how it echoed back, end quote. 
And uh, Keith here breaking in to note that to this point in the conflict, sonar had been used to detect incoming creature attacks under the surface, but it had rarely been successful. 40's vintage sonar simply didn't operate at a resolution high enough to be reliable, especially for soft tissue targets like the sea creatures. These dynamics would be drastically different during the 80s Atlantic resurgence, of course, but that's, uh, that's beyond the scope here. Anyway, back to Kay Hendry. Quote, Again, it wasn't absolute. Not every convoy that pinged at 45 kilocycles was attacked. Not every ship that was attacked had been pinging at 45 kilocycles. But there was a big bump in incidents there. My working theory was that noise at that frequency was attractive to the creatures, so if it went out, they'd respond, but sometimes they might just stumble across ships that hadn't been making that noise, and then they'd attack anyway. Really, it didn't matter. We were looking for a statistical correlation, and we'd found one. We tested it. We rigged a buoy to send out sound pulses at 45 kilocycles, and towed it a couple of miles from shore, and believe me, we had it on a timer so that we could get clear before it turned on. And when it did, wow! Within 15 minutes, three lesser octopi showed up and just went berserk, ripping it apart. My team and I were a little terrified. Even through binoculars from a mile away, it's something to watch those monsters go to work, especially when you yourself are on a boat. But we were also thrilled. We had something solid, and we knew it. At the same time that Hendry's team was doing this work, the Trumbull group within SyncPack grappled with a parallel problem. Innovative weapons like napalm and flechette shells were much more effective against the creatures than all of the traditional war vintage explosive weapons sitting around, but the new weapons continued to be in short supply, while there were literal mountains of the older type of weapons stockpiled. Over time, and through casual conversation between Hendry and Trumbull, the two strains of research became one. What if the known behaviors of the creatures could somehow be exploited in a way that allowed the use of traditional explosive weaponry? This led to the proposal that reached President Thomas Dewey's desk in the summer of 1949, when he heard the latest report from the Naval Bureau of Ordnance that the hoped-for atomic torpedo warheads were to remain unavailable for an indefinite period. The proposal, jointly developed by the Hendry and Trumbull groups, and forwarded with the endorsement of SyncPack Admiral Fletcher, was for an operation to be called Mousetrap, and it was a very simple one. Project Mousetrap called for recommissioning mothballed war surplus Liberty ships, of which hundreds were available, into unpowered barges to be towed unmanned behind destroyers. Liberty ships, for what it's worth, were cargo ships that had been mass-produced during the war, designed for easy mass construction rather than any functional parameters. Um, Liberty ships were slow, ungainly, and vulnerable, but it had been possible to make enough of them to haul the cargo needed for the war as German U-boats had been sinking you know, anything that was afloat on the Atlantic. The uh, recommissioned liberties were to be loaded with high-explosive ordnance, bombs or shells, whatever's available, as much as they could carry, all of it wired to a detonator that could be controlled by radio. After Hendry's team's discovery of the creature's tropism towards sound at 45 kilocycles, they had the thought to mount a simple sonar transducer on the hull to project the sound to attract them. 
and further research indicated that when attracted to a convoy by sound, the creatures seemed to have an instinctual drive to attack vessels that created a lot of turbulence as they moved through the water. So the hulls of the refitted Liberty ships were fitted with noise fins, they were called, which were really just blunt plates of metal welded on to worsen the ship's hydrodynamic performance and make for a more draggy, turbulent passage. And uh, another quick aside here based on this instinctual attack urge, another question that the Hendry team could never fully answer was to what extent the creatures were capable of thought, planning, and coordination. The attacks on Pearl Harbor and San Francisco unmistakably showed elements of strategic thought and coordination. More often, though, their behavior appeared to be nothing more than animalistic stimulus response. In the end, Hendry once again decided that it didn't matter, as long as they could be counted on to reliably attack the noisy barges. Anyway, the operational plan for Project Mousetrap called for convoys and their escorts to be surrounded by a ring of destroyers towing mousetrap barges emitting noise at 45 kilocycles through the open ocean, capitalizing on the fact that the creatures tended to attack the outside of a formation first. If a creature attacked a mousetrap barge, the plan was for the destroyer to cut the tow line, accelerate the top speed, and detonate the barge's explosives by radio. The mousetrap plan was unconventional and unproven, but it made sense given what was known of the threat, and it had the potential to suddenly render the warehouses of useless armaments very useful in reducing the numbers of creatures. Moreover, it was a chance for Dewey to once again say the approach was changing and the initiative was being seized. Public sentiment remained fragile. Hopes were high in Washington and San Diego that Mousetrap could be a major boon in shoring it up. Dewey approved Mousetrap with great enthusiasm and ordered Secretary of Defense Samuel McLeod, who had replaced James Forrestal, to personally call Admiral Fletcher and inform him that the White House was prepared to do whatever was needed to support the program. Given the go order, the Trumbull Group moved quickly to implement a test case mission. A former Liberty ship docked in San Pedro, the SS John Brown, was stripped of its power plant, fitted with a transducer and noise fins, and loaded with several tons of 1,000-pound bombs of the type normally dropped from dive bombers. The destroyer USS Grant, commanded by Lieutenant Commander Edward Morisseau, was chosen for this first run. Morisseau and his officers and crew spent a week in San Diego being briefed by Trumbull and his analysts and did a few sea trials just offshore. And then, on July 7th, Grant steamed to San Pedro to pick up the Brown and toward a Pearl Harbor in the hopes of attracting an attack. The first few days were quiet, and Morisot, reporting back to headquarters several times a day, began to openly fret that the mission might be a failure. And then, about 900 miles out of San Pedro, Grant's aft lookouts reported churn in the water next to the Brown. As the ship leapt to general quarters, Seagird the Serpent erupted out of the water, rainbowing over the Brown, and then repeating the action several times to wrap his length around the hull in his standard attack pattern of enveloping and squeezing. As the creature writhed his way around the brown, Morisot ordered the tow line cut and called for Grant's engine rooms to pour on everything they had. The ship surged forward, 
And once Morisot and his first officer were satisfied that the serpent was sufficiently entangled with the barge, the captain signaled his gunnery officer to push the radio detonator. Brown exploded with tremendous force. Even with thousands of feet of clearance, crewmen on the aft decks of the Grant were knocked off their feet. Two lookouts kept their grip on railings to watch the progress of the detonation and saw the Liberty ship completely disintegrate with large sections flying in all directions. The explosion also ripped Seagird to pieces with coils of his body visibly flying among the chunks of the brown. Morisot ordered the Grant swung around and conducted a thorough survey and search. There was no question that Seagird had been killed. The crew netted several pieces of his carcass, including what was unambiguously a chunk of his head. As this cargo was secured and a course was plotted back to San Diego, Morisot radioed back that the maneuver had been a complete success. On July 19th, Grant arrived in San Diego Harbor in triumph, with the pieces of Seagird's carcass lashed to her decks for all to see. Admiral Fletcher met the ship at the dock, awarding the captain and crew a unit citation for meritorious service and shaking the hand of each member of the crew as they made their ways ashore. Grant's officers and men were then swamped by excited, happy newspapermen for an impromptu dockside news conference. Quote, Watching that old sea snake get blown to a thousand pieces was the happiest sight of my life, Morisot told the LA Times. I'm sorry to my wife and son for saying that, but it's true. Nothing will ever beat that feeling. I really hated that scaly bastard. End quote. The crew of the Grant paid for very few of their own drinks in the bars of San Diego that night or for weeks afterwards. At SyncPack HQ, the order to expedite more mousetrap test case missions with the available supply of Liberty ships had been given even before Grant had returned to port. On July 26th, a second mousetrap mission operated from the USS Chilton eliminated a secondary class Kraken and two lesser serpents 400 miles southwest of Los Angeles. Word of the second success moved from ship to San Diego to Washington, sparking jubilant reactions all the way around. Dewey, McLeod, and the Joint Chiefs were ecstatic with the apparent success of the mousetrap operational concept. Dewey wanted the program ordered into full-scale operation immediately, but McLeod warned him that full-scale use of the mousetrap system to protect convoys would quickly run into a new problem. Although, theoretically, plenty of surplus Liberty ships existed, the vast majority of them remained on the East Coast, with only around 15% of the total number docked in Pacific ports. The shortage was compounded by the continued inoperability of the Panama Canal, preventing the easy transfer of the many liberties mothballed in the East. Dewey acknowledged the potential difficulty and ordered Mousetrap into full-scale operation anyway, saying that the bait ship bottleneck would be dealt with when it arose. In the meantime, he also ordered priority reconstruction of the west locks of the Panama Canal. Project estimates for the repair, which was projected to take at least six to eight months, had existed for years but had never been enacted because of fears of renewed attack from an alpha creature during the work. Outraged that the plans had been languishing on shelves for years without being put into action, Dewey ordered them into effect immediately 
with a round-the-clock cloud of napalm-armed air support circling the sea on the westward approach to the locks, ready to use space denial tactics to prevent any attacks while the repairs were underway. The work proceeded fitfully, with workers nervous about showing up at the construction site. They had heard assurances before that there was no danger, but they showed up, and they did the work, and the work progressed. And that is it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Please join me next week as we take a look at the bigger picture of what was going on as Project Mousetrap seemed to be making a difference in the Pacific. Thanks, and be well. Thank you.